Our Old Testament scripture reading will be from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, and that can be found on page 656 in your pew Bible in front of you. Starting in verse 4, it says, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare in your city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Okay, I'll be reading the New Testament, Acts 2, 42 through 47. It'll be in your pew Bible on page 911. And they devote themselves to apostles, teaching the fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. And all came up, every soul and many wonders and signs being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and disturbing proceeds to all and they had need. And a day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the day added to their number by day by day and those who were being saved. Thank um This is the word of the Lord. Wow, what a different vision, isn't it? Cast in in Isaiah, this feast on the mountains, in, in, in Jeremiah, this, in the midst of exile, this beautiful scenario where People are giving their children in marriage and receiving wives for their children. This, this amazing vision in Acts uh, chapter 2, and this is after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has come, where God casts this beautiful vision of people receiving each other with openness and, and sharing meals together and, and and experiencing, did you hear those words, gladness of heart and rejoicing together. I mean, is that your daily experience? I have to tell you that, that, um, that I, I confess, but I turn on the TV and I, and I start to watch what's going on. And, and I see another riot developing somewhere and I see backbiting and stuff like that. And, and, and I, I, I feel like, God, this isn't. This isn't what I want. This isn't who I am. Honestly, that word exile that he used there, did you hear that in Jeremiah? To the places that I sent you in exile. I sent you. God places his people sometimes in these untenable situations uh, where, where um, we feel like we don't belong here. This is not my home. And, and, and yet, he does it for a purpose, we're seeing in his word today. He does it because he's all about using transformed people to bring about transformation of homes 
and neighborhoods and, and, and societies and nations and, and his world. So, so I just want to invite you today to open your heart, if you can, to what God might be doing in our midst. So open your heart to his word for just a few moments before we come to the table of the Lord and, and experience, um, possibly experience together with me a possible solution to the situation we find ourselves I have to tell you that um, when I was in seminary, I heard for the first time a poem that, that rattled my cage. Um, it was written by Wilbur Reese. I'm not sure when it was. I just became aware of it when I was in my early 20s. And it went something like this. It said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Have you heard this one before? I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to explode my soul or certainly to disturb my sleep, but just enough that equals a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or to pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three pounds of God, please. I have to tell you that I see a lot of myself in that poem. I want, I want just enough of you, God, to feel good about myself, but not enough of you to be actually transformed. Well, we're finishing today our series that we've been talking about, um, making room for life, preparing for the transformation that, that God is going to do in our midst. And, and so I want to I want to wrap it up by reminding ourselves of some of the things that we have learned, some of the reasons behind what we're experiencing. But also one last challenge to say this is not about us or for us. This is about what God is doing in his world. And how do we take it from here? So I invite you to follow along with me if you'd like. Um, uh, you can follow in the notes. I know there's not much room there to re- respond. I think we have mo- many of the notes available for you on the screen as well. I want to start by saying, where are we? What is the state of this culture which God has sent you as a missionary? I just about fell off the stage right there. Uh, you as a missionary. And what is the state of this situation? And I, I, I sought several words, and I actually, even before the service, I was still praying, God, is there, is there one word that kind of describes the state that we find ourselves? And the one that was kept coming back to me is this word, divided. Divided. We're divided over issues of race. Amen? We are divided over issues of religion. We're divided over politics, certainly over gender, we're divided over distribution of wealth. The list goes on and on and on. But it's, it's not just our culture, it's, it's our nation. It, it's not just our nation, it's our community. It's not just our community, sometimes it's our home. It's not just our home, it's ourselves. We live with divided hearts, right? Divided hearts. 
So how do we respond? Well, I'm going to suggest to you that oftentimes we respond with disillusionment. And you could see it on people's faces. Still, others respond with discouragement. And we'll come back and unpack these in a second. Still, others are disgraced. They, 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 they feel put out and rejected. But I want to, I want to suggest to you, and I always have this weird little approach to, to our experiences. I want to suggest to you that these might not be bad. Think about disillusionment for a second. What is it the opposite of illusion, right? And what is an illusion? It's a, it's a non-reality that we're hiding in. It's a, a three pounds of God, right? It, it's, it's an illusion. It's not reality. And God does not want us to live in non-reality. So there is a divine disillusionment that is good. That is good. I want to suggest to you that there is a divine discouragement that is good. Well, aren't we supposed to be courageous? Absolutely. But not in ourselves, not in our ability to deliver ourselves or to solve these problems ourselves, right? There is a a discouragement from uh, trusting in our own selves that is good. If it brings us to that place where we have no place else to turn but to turn to God. And, and it's hard for me to say, but I believe that there's a divine disgrace that is good, right? If, if all we perceive of ourselves is, is, is um, righteous in our own eyes or privileged in our own eyes or self-sufficient in our own eyes, there is a beauty in disgrace because it brings us back to the reality of our need for grace, but I want you to know that I experienced those things too that you have experienced. And I want to I want to just remind us for a second that that it's important sometimes for these things to happen. It's important for us to be disillusioned if the what the world that's being projected to us is an illusionment. You see, if we're starting to just buy into what the culture around us says, if we're not understanding what God's perspective for us is, then, then, then we're beginning to lose our way. Isaiah, in Isaiah 5, God says through Isaiah, don't uh, call evil good or good evil. If, if we begin to live into this illusion that our culture has that these things are really good and they're not, then all we're doing is condemning a culture to an eternity apart from Christ. Does that make sense? And, 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 and that's not good. So we have, to, we have to be careful when we find ourselves in this holy discontent. What is our next step? What is our next step? I want to suggest to you that the thing that... Uh, let me just stop for a second. Are you experiencing this? I mean, are you just nodding your heads because you feel sorry for me? I mean, are you, are you experiencing this too? Um, um, that, that we're reaching the futility of our self-sufficiency and those kinds of things? Um, I want to suggest to you that, that uh, I'm going to try and bring good news now after bringing some bad news, that this is not unusual, right? This has been going on since Genesis 3. And in particular today, in the different contexts of our scripture, I want you to see that what we're experiencing today is not different. Uh, we're experiencing it right here in our culture, but they also experienced it in the Acts culture, in the first century culture. They experienced the same kind of thing. Think about that for just a second. Was there politics in those days? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Huge politics. Was there a, was there a massive military a war culture? Oh, yeah. Were there people that wanted war just to keep... Yeah. Uh, were there religious strife? Yeah. Was there racism? Yeah. Was there employment slavery? Yeah. All those things were going on right then. By the way, if you've never done that... Just do a word study on things like Sadducee and Pharisee and Essene and Zealot. Even within the faith community, there was amazing division in that day. And whenever I'm tempted to get overwhelmed, I just go back and say, Jesus, how did you navigate that? How did you, how did you walk in a world that was so divided? Because, God, our world is so divided as well. The first century culture was that was like that, but even even the culture that Isaiah and, and Jeremiah warned about and experienced, in Jeremiah's case as well, the Babylonian culture was that way too. It was a massive military machine. There was, there was um, uh, employment slavery, there was poverty, there was religious diversity, there was all the things that are present in our culture were there. Then that's what makes it so dramatic when, when God says, understand, I recognize those things and I put you in the middle of those things. But God, this is exile for me. I feel far from home. Yes, but I placed you there. I don't want to give away the farm, but do you remember a few Christmases ago when we were talking about the, the Magi that came, guess where, from the East? Remember that aha moment when we discovered that, that how many centuries? Eight centuries after Isaiah spoke. Six centuries after uh, uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were placed in the Babylonian culture, they sent Magi to worship and honor the Messiah Jesus. And so, so it's easy to get discouraged, but God is saying to us, I don't want you to be discouraged. I placed you there. There's a reason you're a light shining in a dark place. There's a reason your heart is broken in the culture that you're living in because you're my person there. I have placed you there. So there's three parallel cultures, our culture, the first century culture, and the Babylonian culture. Why are they parallel? What is the issue that makes them all united? The issue isn't the culture. I want to suggest to you it, the issue is that there's humans in that culture. And the problem is not the humans. The problem is the problem of the human heart. It doesn't divide racially. It divides right down the center of the human heart. This problem is the problem of sin. And what are we going to do? What are we going to do when we come face to face with a broken, sinful world? What are we going to do when we come face to face with a a broken, sinful self? Well, what is the solution? I'm going to suggest to you that the solution is, is transformation. I know that's a buzzword. I know we use it a lot around here at all of that. We talk about, and remember, that it begins with one heart. It goes to our families and both our, our family at home and our spiritual family. And then it transforms our city and then it transforms our globe. We're talking about transformation. Note that I didn't say change. I'd already written this down when, and you know who you are. When you said to me this morning, one woman said to me, I do not like change. I do not, she saw the table. She said, what are you doing? I do not like change. And I said, I have already written down in my notes. I didn't say change. 
because nobody likes change except wet babies, right? Well, I said, I said transformation. We, we, God is inviting us to be transformed from the inside out. The solution is transformation. So how does this happen? How does transformation happen? Let me just note several things. First of all, we have to have a realization. We have to have the realization that the problem is not someone else or some other group, some other religion, some other race, some other outside of me. The problem is me, right? I love G.K. Chesterton when he said that. He was asking, what's the, what's the problem with human nature? He said, the problem's me. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. We have to recognize that that's where it starts. And then transformation continues as we genuinely repent. I know that's not a popular word in our culture, but that's the clear message of the gospel, right? Um, Of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Of Jesus, repent for the kingdom of God is here. In a couple of weeks, uh, Chad will help us understand more deeply about the kingdom of God. But it is here right now. And the way into that kingdom is by repentance. What's repentance? A change of mind, which leads to a change of heart, which leads to changed action and ultimately a changed world. A change of mind, which leads to a change of heart which leads to changed actions and ultimately a changed world. The marker of that is the spirit-filled Christian, is the person who has put, who has repented of their brokenness, called on the name of the Lord, and in response, God places himself in us through his spirit. And, and so... Um, at Pentecost, a trick question that I always ask my discipleship triads is, when, when did Peter become a disciple of Jesus? And the, and the trick answer to that is not uh, uh, at Caesarea Philippi when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, certainly not when he fell on his knees and said, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Uh, certainly not in the garden when he betrayed him three times. But probably he became a fully devoted follower when at Pentecost the Holy Spirit came to dwell in him. And so, and so um, that was the marker. Now I'm going to follow him. Did God then receive him to himself? Say, okay, great. That was my only goal was to get you to be filled with the Spirit. Now come home and, and, and we'll wait and see who else does this as well. We'll wait for my perfect plan to be He didn't do that. He left Peter there because he had a a, a responsibility for Peter to fulfill. And and he had a process for Peter to go through. So we realize that the problem is us. And we repent of our self-centeredness and call on the name of the Lord. And we receive renewal. Did you hear that that phrase in Acts 2.42? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Now, devoted just means wholehearted engagement. They devoted themselves to God's plan revealed to them in the written and spoken. In that days, they didn't have a lot of the New Testament written yet. The spoken word. And in 
in uh, devoting themselves to the written, spoken, and living word, Jesus Christ. They understood God's plan. So they were not surprised when all of a sudden things didn't go like they would have hoped for. They were not surprised when they were disillusioned and even disgraced. They counted it joy when they experienced that because they recognized that God was doing something wonderful in them and through them. They were partnering with God in bringing about God's plan. They also recognized that they couldn't bring about God's plan without devoting themselves to God's people. They devoted themselves. It's a very technical word right there. You've heard it so many times. Koinonia. Have you heard that word before? Um, uh, it literally means house group. <laughs> house group. Oikos house group here. Um, the Koinonia fellowship is a spirit-centered fellowship around our common identity as God's people in Jesus Christ. They devoted themselves to that. And, and so, so the community of faith in its myriad expressions, not just on Sunday mornings, and in their case on, uh, at the temple and then in homes, but throughout the week, the deep fellowship that comes with being with like-minded people was a priority for them, and they devoted themselves to that. Now, I know all kinds of things were happening during that time. They were encouraging one another, right? We're discouraged today. Hey, let me encourage you. God is moving. I can see him moving in you. Sometimes they held each other accountable. They had to say, help me understand. You're saying this, but I'm seeing this. Help me understand. But they devoted themselves to it and trusted one another in the midst of it, not only to God's plan, but also to his people. But they also devoted themselves to God's presence. And, and you say, how did they do that? It's so interesting that... that the center for them of devoting themselves to God's presence was the table. Was the table. There's just something that happens when we gather at table. Have you experienced that? I mean, I know our culture says we've got to fill every waking moment with as many things as possible. And, And many in our culture rarely experience sitting down at table together. We've become a fast food culture. I'm, I I'm one of the worst at this. I, I'm thinking about all the things that I got to do. Um, um, my wife is is a, a slow eater, and I'm finding myself going, you know, moving, fidgeting, and 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 she's got she's got a peach on a fork, and she's looking at it, and I'm thinking, eat the darn thing, you know. <laughs> and yet something happens when she slows us down. Something happens when we sit at fellowship. Life actually happens. All of a sudden, someone says, oh, I hadn't thought of it till just now, but something happened to me today I wanted to tell you guys about. And we begin to converse about stuff. And, and because we slowed down, we genuinely met each other. Instead, Chad actually challenged several, six, seven weeks ago, challenged us, make room for the family table. But did you hear that? It went by really fast in that Acts chapter. Breaking bread together in one another's homes. Now it went from just their home to other people's homes. And they weren't just breaking bread with 
with other Christians, they were, they were also breaking bread with the people in the culture around him. Do you remember when Jesus rocked Peter's world by going to Matthew's house for, uh, for dinner and a party? Do you remember that? Uh, uh, he just absolutely rocked Peter's world because, Jesus, we don't hang around with those kind of people. And Jesus says, I do. I do. I've um, got to take that idea of table fellowship back to our neighborhoods. Now, so what do you do? Go home tonight and invite all your neighbors over to dinner? They'll go, ah, that's a little creepy to me. Uh, no, you build relationships. You build relationship natural ones. A lot of uh, people at all that walk in my neighborhood, because right next to the parking lot here, I guess, I've almost run them over a few times when I come whipping into my parking space. But... Um, but it's so cool to see people walking in the neighborhood, right? And, and, and stopping and chatting with people on the front porch, building relationships. Jesus was all about building relationships. And I want to encourage you that, that your table is not just for your family. That's really important. But what if once a week you invited someone to join you? Someone you had been in conversation with. Now, I know that not all of you live in neighborhoods. Some of you live in the country and those kinds of things. But you can find an application to this, maybe with your coworkers or other things. What if you invited people to sit at table with you? What if they watched you slurp spaghetti and, and, and watched the rest of the meal as you had that big red stripe up the side of your cheek and you didn't know it was there? And, and, and they thought, I still remember Katie. They thought, you know, they're just like me when Katie came over to our house many years ago, and the Johnson's daughter, did she say to you, Mom, they're messy just like we are, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what if you opened your home, opened your neighborhood to, to sharing table together too? Um, they devoted themselves to, share, to breaking bread at table. Why? Because there's something about God's presence that happens when two or more gather together in his name. In just a few moments, we're going to have a chance to do that here, to gather in Jesus' name. And yeah, there will be seven or eight people around each table, but there will be another one there as well, present here spiritually in the cup, present here in the bread, ready to minister grace to you, not just to you, but to you, right? So one of the ways that, that we are transformed is by devoting ourselves to God's presence. And in a few moments, I invite you to do that. The last one I just wanted to mention to you here is, is prayer. Some of you are thinking, well, I live in the country. I can't do that. You can pray. Some of you say, my neighbors would never want to come to my house. They would never want to start a conversation with me. And I'm, I'm smiling because I'm remembering Rob and Susan across the street from me. And when they moved into our old house, um, I just said, God, would you, would you provide a way for us to meet and to get to know each other? And, and within a day, Rob came over to my house, banged on the door and says, can you come over? I don't understand how to use this water here. And invited me back into my old house. And I got to know them as my neighbors pray, pray. Devote, let me say it stronger, devote yourself to pray. And then watch what happens as God answers you. The issue is table. 
What would God have you do with what he's blessed you with? The table is God's gift for transformation. And some of you may be coming to that place today where you're saying, I, God, need to be transformed. I invite you, put your trust in Jesus Christ. He hears. He will respond. He can transform you. Still others saying, my, my strength and my courage is flagging. I've been discouraged and disillusioned. Come to the table of the Lord. Come and find strength with your brothers and sisters in the presence of Christ. Come, offer yourself to be transformed. If, if the gospel of the kingdom of God is going to be, bring about the transformation of society, it's got to begin with us. It's got to begin with God's people. Will it take us places that are scary and uncomfortable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Will it force us outside of our own self-made world? Absolutely. But beloved, in the end, one day we'll stand together with not just our families, not just our faith family, but with surprising generations of people. I know it's a utopian vision. I, I believe in it. That, that one day someone will come to you and say, you never met me. But you blessed so-and-so who blessed her, who blessed him, who shared Jesus Christ with me. And that person was the instrument by which I came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My eternity has been transformed because of you. I don't do that to put pressure on you. I do that to grant you gladness and hope and joy. Can you imagine when you stand with a whole and healthy jersey in eternity and she's able to say to you, maybe for the first time, you know, I know your back was screaming in church when you were holding me, but, but because you love me, I experience the love of God. Who would God have you touch today? Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for the privilege of experiencing your presence. Thank you for the myriad ways that this expresses itself in our homes and in our faith community. And God, in the coming months as we talk about transforming our city, but God, um, nothing's more important than, than it happening here right now. Would you meet us in this place? Would you take the simple juice and make it the spiritual presence of Christ, the blood of Christ, which cleanses us of all unrighteousness? We don't need to be rebaptized, Lord. We just need to be cleansed and, and sent back out to do the work that you've given us. Would you take this simple, I think it's pita bread, God, and make it the spiritual presence of Jesus so that we can be renewed and refreshed and strengthened for the task which is unique to each of us, but which is ahead. And God, I just pray that somehow as we come together in this fellowship that we would find strength for our time of need. We love you and we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.